Well, it's a privilege and pleasure to be together to open up God's Word. If you can turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, that's where we'll be this morning. And as we begin, I'll just have a question. And this is the question. How do you know what you know? How do you have certainty about what you know or what you think you know? Is there such thing as truth or absolute truth or is everything relative? Relativism. Uh, we are familiar with this in our society. The basic idea that there are no universal or absolute truths in the world, just different ways of viewing or interpreting everything. Relativism means that no belief, idea, proposition, or claim can be true or false, good or bad, right or wrong, absolutely so. According to the relativists, truth is only relative and subjective. As an example, the relative can't consistently claim that 2 plus 2 is 4. This seems basic to us, but from the Relativist perspective, the answer for is neither right nor wrong. It just depends. I mean, your math teacher, they like four, but you prefer six. And so for you, the answer is six. This is relativism. I surely hope there are not any relativist engineers redesigning Woody C. Freeway. <laughs> I don't want a relativist bank teller counting me my money back either, right? But how do you know, friends, you come here this morning? How do you know what you know? There are huge implications that follow the answer to that question. What is truth and how do you know? What would your response be? How does the, the born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ answer those questions? What is truth and how do you know? How do you have certainty about it? How can you know and how can you know that you know? Fundamentally, there's only two ways to have absolute certainty about anything. The first way is you yourself must have comprehensive knowledge about everything that there is. You must know everything perfectly because what you don't know could contradict what you think you do know. Therefore, you can never have certainty about that thing. Therefore, if you want to have certainty about something, the first way is you must be omniscient. Any takers? Uh, I didn't think so. But praise God, there is a second way to have certainty about something. It's what the Christians have, a revelatory epistemology. Have a being that does know everything tell you what truth is. Have someone that does have comprehensive knowledge reveal to you what you need to know in order to have certainty. You can have certainty if someone who knows everything tells you the truth. And is there any other area that you and I must have certainty in than in the area of salvation? Is there any other answer that we need to have certainty in as is the answer to the question, how can sinful man be made right with God? 
Friends, because we, you and I, we don't have comprehensive knowledge of all things. We need the omniscient, the all-knowing God to reveal to us how to be made right with him. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. And we've sinned against him and dissolved the relationship. So if we are ever going to be made right with him, if restoration is ever to occur, he must tell us how that can happen. And I believe that's Paul's point in our text this morning. God has revealed in the gospel message given to Paul how man can be made right with him. Paul has conveyed this truth to the Galatians and now he's defending this truth. Paul understands the eternal gravity of trusting in God's revelation, what God has said concerning the good news. Trusting in God's good news is important. Getting the true gospel correct is paramount because the implications or the consequences that follow are eternal consequences. So Paul writes this letter to the Galatians. He writes this letter and he seems frustrated bewildered as the ESV translated he says astonished I mean there's still water in the ears of these newly baptized Gentile believers and they've already begun to entertain a different gospel message other than the true message that Paul preached to them when he was with them look at your Bibles at chapter 1 verses 6 and 7 Paul says I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This, these churches in Galatia had started abandoning the pure gospel that Paul preached to them. Their desertion, their abandonment was not unprovoked. We read in the text there are Men known as the Judaizers, they are trailing Paul. They're bird dogging his steps as he plants churches. Once Paul leaves the church, they creep into the church and they begin to teach that salvation was by grace and by works. They taught that you had to couple mosaic works with the gospel in order to be saved. Luke captures these men's intentions and their teachings in Acts 15, verse 1, Luke says, But some men came down from Judea who were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is what they propagated. And the primary means that the Judaizers used to promote their gospel as gospel was to demote Paul's apostolic authority in the church and in the mind of these believers. If they could discredit the man somehow, they could also discredit his message. And their attack against Paul is twofold. One, Paul's a man pleaser. Two, Paul's not a true apostle. They claimed that Paul was not a true apostle because he didn't walk with Christ as the other apostles did. Since he didn't walk with Christ, he could not have been commissioned by Christ to speak authoritatively for Christ. Therefore, Paul has some sort of man-made authority at best. Maybe he's 
commissioned by the church of Jerusalem or maybe commissioned by the other apostles. But one way or the other, Paul has a man-made authority. Look at Paul's answer to that allegation in Galatians 1.1. He opens up his letter. Paul, an apostle or a messenger or representative, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. From the onset, Paul establishes in his letter that his message does not find its origin in man, but in the sovereign Lord Jesus. I think the Judaizers' attack against Paul is brilliant. If the Judaizers could establish that Paul's gospel was from Jerusalem, they could argue that they represented Jerusalem as well placing themselves on equal status with Paul and therefore of equal authority with Paul. They could claim that they represented maybe the latest expression of the gospel from Jerusalem, and therefore they could modify what Paul has said and it be viewed as correct. The argument could be uh, that even Paul preached a sort of abbreviated form of the gospel. The true gospel, Paul lessened it for the sake of these Gentile believers to make it more attractive to them and thus making Paul out to be a man pleaser. And this is the attack that they take on Paul. They claim that he removed adherence to Mosaic works from his message to make it more acceptable and appealing to the Gentile population. Therefore, he was seeking to please man. Look at Paul's answer to this accusation in Galatians 1, starting in verse 8. Look at your Bible. Paul says, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's damned, doomed. Sentence to hell, Paul says. Verse 10, he says, For am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. I love this. Paul's ink on his greeting is barely dried and he's already throwing out anathema bombs. He, he pronounces a double curse on anyone who was strayed from the gospel that he originally preached to these Galatians. And then he says, for now, am I seeking the, the man's approval? It, it, does that sound like a man pleaser to you? Someone who hurls anathema bombs on everyone? Does that sound like I'm pleasing man? Like a, like a car salesman who takes off all the bells and whistles of an expensive car to make it more appealing and affordable to a penny pitcher such as myself. They claim that Paul presented a lesser gospel. He gave them a Cadillac gospel, but he removed the heated seats and backup camera. Paul was a man pleaser. Of both charges, Paul says, I'm not a second grade apostle and I'm not a man pleaser. He pleads not guilty. And in our verses this morning, verses 11 through 24, he's arguing for his independent authority. He's not dependent on man in any way for the message that he preached, but that he got his message 
directly from the Lord Jesus. This section sometimes is called the autobiographical section, Paul's autobiographical section. He argues that his gospel is independent of any man's teaching in verses 13 through 17, and then in any of the major churches in verses 18 through 24. Then next week we'll study his independence from the Jerusalem pillars or the apostles, followed by his independence from Peter specifically, who was likely seen as the most important apostle in the early church. Paul is brilliant by eliminating these as the sources of his gospel. He established that his gospel is from the Lord Jesus Christ, and he shatters the arguments of his opponents who talked that his gospel was from Jerusalem or maybe just from those connected to Jerusalem. As we dive into this text this morning, I think it's important for us to understand that this is important for Paul. This is important to Paul because coupled with his frustration and his bewilderment and his astonishment is actually concern. Concern for these believers who are in the churches of Galatia. Paul truly desires for them to adhere to the only saving message. Paul wants the Galatians to know that when they listened to him preach, they were hearing the message that he received directly from God and was not in any way his personal relativistic interpretation of a message, nor a message that he received or heard from the other apostles. Paul needs to know that when these Galatians think, thus says Paul, they equate that with, thus says the Lord, because his message is from the Lord Jesus Christ, not from man. And so read with me our verses for this morning, and we'll see Paul's defense of his gospel message. Galatians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 11 and read through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own. Uh, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But. When he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I may preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Verse 20. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the region of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown to the persons in the church of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of me. Let us pray. Father, thank you for granting us the 
privileged to study your word. We adore your word. The psalmist says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And we do believe this about your truth. We believe that, that you speak only truth, and therefore we ask that you would sanctify us in your truth this morning. Father, there are some obstacles that you must help us to overcome this morning if we are to glean wisdom from your word this morning. And so I ask for your help. Would you help us to not feel detached from this text? Though we are rehearsing truths from over 2,000 years ago in a land seemingly far away from us, would you help us to No, we need the same certainty that the Galatian church needed. That we needed to know that Paul's words were from you. When we read what he wrote, we need to have the certainty that he wrote on your behalf and that he represented you. We need that certainty. We need to believe this truth. So would you help us? Would you help us this morning by your spirit to tune our hearts to the frequency of your truth and to be ready and have willing hearts to bow to the truth therein. Apart from your grace, we can do nothing. So we ask for your help that Christ may be glorified in these lives that he's given to us. It's in your name that I pray these things. Amen. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, we will see Paul's autobiographical defense of his independent authority that can provide you, Christian, with the proof you need that his message is directly from Jesus and therefore can be trusted. So look at with me these verses, starting in verse 11, Paul. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's thesis statement. This is what he's trying to promote and to get the Galatians church to understand. The thing that the Galatian believers must comprehend is that Paul is not sent by man, but he's sent as a messenger of God representing gospel truth. The gospel Paul taught cannot be overlooked, it cannot be added to, it cannot be subtracted from, and cannot be modified in any way because the authority that Paul preached with was the authority of the one who sent Paul to preach. Therefore, his words are true. He uses a strong word here, gnozo. He says, I would have you know. It, It means to make certain. Is used when the introduction of something important is coming up. He, he, he wants you to know for certain. Even the King James Version translates this, I certify. Paul uses the same verb in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says, Therefore I want you to 
understand, same word, gnozo, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. One thing that we as believers need to understand is that if someone comes up and is speaking to us and they say something along the lines of Jesus is accursed, we can know for certainty, we can know with confidence that that person does not speak from the Spirit. Paul wants us to know, to make known, to stamp in our minds that this is the truth. No one speaking this way is of the Spirit. He uses the same verb when he begins to talk about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I make known to you the truth. So this is something that Paul is introducing us to that he wants us to know for certain or he wants the Galatian church to know for certain. And what is it? That his gospel, which he preached, is not of man. Know for certain, brother, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Paul's gospel didn't originate with man. It's not according to man. It's not after the manner of man. It's not from man's authority or will. Paul uses this Greek construction, the way that he uses the tense to point them back to his original messages. Paul says, I would have you know what I preached, he, he, he's using a verbal tense to call them back to remember the words that he says. The gospel that I preach, and he uses this play on words, euangelion, euangelizo. The, the gospel, gospeled, is what Paul is saying. The good news I conveyed as good news, remember that. Remember the sermons and the, the times we sat down and the times we talked and what I communicated to you about who Christ is, what he accomplished, and the implications of that. Paul is literally calling them to remember his words. Remember what I said to you. Remember what I actually preached to you when I was there in the region of Galatia. What would Paul's message have been? What is Paul's gospel message? Not any different from ours, right? Salvation is in Jesus alone. There's no other name given under heaven by which man must be saved. Acts 4.12 God fulfilled all of his Old Testament revelation in the person of Jesus Christ, bringing to fulfillment what he said he will do in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul would have said that anyone can come to Christ, but it's only by faith. This would have been apart from any merit on their own, apart from any living in accordance with Mosaic law. Paul would have said Christ is the only way you can come to him by faith. And a third aspect I'm sure he would have promoted to the Galatians is that anyone can come, Jew or Gentile. You don't have to become Jewish to be saved. If we think back and we remember, the Jews never had a problem with people coming to Yahweh to worship him, being saved. The only recommend, the only qualification is that you had to come through the Jews. You had to come and conform basically to the Jewish lifestyle and observe, observe the Jewish customs. Then you could be saved. But now because of what Christ has done and the revelation given to Paul to the Gentiles, Gentiles can be saved 
as Gentiles. And this was a difficult thing in the early church. It was a point of contention. It took some time to develop. We see this in the book of Acts. They struggled with it for quite a while. But this is the message that the Lord gave to Paul. Paul didn't receive his gospel message from man, but he received it, he says, through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful text of Scripture. He puts it over against man's gospels. I didn't get this from man. All man's gospels are work-based, and therefore all of them are damaged goods. You can't trust any man's gospel. They're not good news, but bad news. They don't save. They condemn you to hell. Paul is first stating that his independent gospel is separated from man. He states it negatively first, but then he goes on to state positively who it's from. He mentioned it in Galatians 1.1, not from man or through man, but through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he reaffirms that here. Paul faced this question. Where did his law-free gospel come from? Where'd you get it from, Paul? He received his authority for preaching the law-free gospel to Gentiles. He says, from the Lord Jesus Christ. A revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a communication of knowledge previously hidden or a revealing of truth previously unknown. And Paul says it was through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here we have many commentators disagree, I think, straining at gnats. But that's my opinion because I have a small brain about things. They debate rather Paul is saying that Jesus is the object of revelation, meaning that he is the one given the revelation, or that Jesus is the subject of the revelation, meaning he is who the revelation is about. And my answer is yes. Seems simple. I know I'm not that smart, but it seems obvious to me. I do lean here in particular, Paul is trying to say that Jesus is the one given the revelation, but grammatically speaking, both options are available. Both options are acceptable. But this is the question I have to ask myself. What gospel message doesn't have Christ at the center? What gospel message is not about Christ? I think Paul would agree with me. We'll get to these verses here in a little bit, but look down at verse 15 and 16. Paul says, But when God, who has set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son, pleased to was pleased to reveal his son to me, so that I might proclaim him as good news. There's no contradiction in Paul's mind of his preaching the gospel being preaching Christ. I think Paul looked at the scriptures and seen they were about Jesus. Jesus would agree with that. John 5, 39, he's talking to the Pharisees. You search the scripture because you believe in them. You have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. I think Jesus and Paul would agree with me. Well, technically speaking, I agree with them. But you, you get the point. Paul's revelation was from Jesus, but it was also about Jesus, not from man in any way, which would have been a stark contrast, and I believe a jab at the Judaizers. Because where did they get their non-gospel gospel from? Man. Tradition. 
rabbi quoting rabbi quoting rabbi. That's where they got their message from. The scriptures were at best a, a relic in the Jewish faith at this time. They were never sought for divine guidance. They were merely a stepping stone to establish some sort of tradition that they wanted to establish. Paul says, that's not the case with the message that I proclaimed. Paul was not some apprentice at, apprentice at Man's Wisdom Technical Institute. He didn't go there to learn from some master craftsman the gospel that he preached. Paul got his message directly from Christ and therefore he adhered to what Christ said and preached the truth. And I believe here's where we find the application for us today. Paul adhered to what Christ spoke to him and what he told him to preach. This means that we must follow his example and adhere to the truth of God's word, Christ's words. This means that we should be less concerned with charismatic personalities or some preacher's opinion or a unique talented speaker of some sort. The question that we all must ask and be answered is, are they faithful to the direct revelation that God has given? Are they preaching the scriptures? Do they adhere to the truth of Scripture? Are they speaking from the direct revelation given to Paul from Jesus? That's the only question that matters. Adherence to the word is the most important thing about any man's ministry. Paul's authority was tied to the fact that he faithfully was preaching what Christ told him to preach. And his apostolic authority is still in effect today because we have those truths captured in Scripture. How are you doing with adhering to them? When the Scriptures speak to your life, when they cut areas of your heart and soul, how do you respond? Do you respond like the Judaizers is sent to add some tradition on top of it? Or do you bow to what they have to say? I pray that you do, because Paul is not concerned necessarily with Paul. The only reason he's defending his apostleship to the Gentiles is because the gospel message is tied to it. I like the way that John Stott sort of summarizes Paul here. He says, quote, Paul is affirming that his message is not his message, but God's message that his gospel is not his gospel, but God's gospel, that his words are not his words, but God's words, end quote. That's what was important to Paul. He looked to what Christ revealed to him for truth. Where do you look? Where do you look? That's Paul's thesis statement. And now Paul sort of provides these proofs to his thesis statement. We'll look at the first one here. His pre-conversion life. Read with me verse 13 and 14. Paul says, for, I have, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. Paul 
is here trying to highlight the fact that there is no way that his pre-Christ life prepared him to teach and preach the law-free gospel. Nothing in Paul's resume will qualify him to preach the grace-saturated, faith alone, free from Mosaic law adherence, gospel truth of Christ. No earthly or human reason for Paul to become a slave of Christ. In fact, just the opposite was the true is what he's trying to highlight. He was utterly convinced that the true gospel was the wrong gospel. And so he opposed it adamantly and passionately. He tells the Galatians, you've heard of my former life. This is good. This is a, a way of living, a conduct of life. The way I behave, what Paul is trying to say. You heard about me. You know, it's unclear. Rather, Paul is speaking of something he himself disclosed to them or something that they heard from other people that was traveling with Paul. We don't know for sure. But one thing is clear is they knew about Paul B.C. Before Christ. Yeah, They knew about Saul. Saul was a bad boy, wasn't he? Nobody, not even Sid, wanted to get caught in dark alley with Saul. He was a bad boy. Paul says, I persecuted the church violently is how our translations translate it. It's, it's beyond measure I persecuted the church. That's how it would read in the Greek. It's, it's, this word is interesting. It means extraordinary Overabundance. That's what he's trying to say. It, it's an it's a indication of an of a, amount, if you will. It's having more than necessary. And he puts it in the imperfect tense, which means a continuous action in the past. Paul was saying, Saul, he lived a life of continuously, overly, aggressively, over in abundance, persecuting the church. He persecuted and, and persecuted and, and persecuted. He found delight and joy in it. He didn't just dip his toe in the persecution pool. He, he dove in head first. Paul was overly and abundantly indulging and persecuting the church. It's like when Kristen makes banana pudding. Hmm. So good. And a small bowl would suffice. But I extraordinarily in an overabundance eat multiple hefty storage bowl size of banana pudding. So good. Persecuting Christians was Saul's banana pudding. He lived for it. He loved it. He was utterly convinced that he was doing the right thing by the Lord. He had a zeal for persecuting the church. Hunting Christians down was not a sideline hobby of Saul. It's not something he did when he had nothing else to occupy himself. For Saul in those days to be alive was to be hunting Christians. I think Luke captures this so well in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Luke writes about Saul. He says, now Saul, 
I like this, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He says, so still breathing, as, as easy as breathing is, as routine as breathing is, Paul was, he was looking to hunt down Christians. He wanted to persecute them, throw them in jail, have them killed, both men and women. How's that for inclusive policy? Paul didn't care. If you were a Christian, you could be good as dead or in jail. He fully understood. He fully knew what he was doing and why he was doing it. He says, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. This is a, this is a deep passion that he had for his Jewish faith. It's like Phineas. You guys remember Phineas in Numbers 25? You remember Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19? They both slain those who were in opposition to Yahweh, and they felt there was a righteous thing to do. Saul felt like he was doing the Lord a favor by taking out Christians. And he says, I wanted to destroy it. He wasn't okay with just being a disturber or a devastator. He wanted the church to be stamped out, to be done. He was advancing in Judaism, making headway in Judaism. Saul was zealous, he was determined, he was passionate about his religion. Nothing in his former life would say that he would preach Christ. Nothing in Saul's former life would say that the Lord would use him. He was zealous. I mean, in a lot of ways, we can learn from Saul. His zeal for his faith, it was misdirected, but he had passion and he was true to it, and he was sold out to it, how much more should we be knowing that we have the truth? Paul's point is clear. My former life suggests nothing by which I would preach Christ, especially a Christ-filled, law-divorced gospel message that faith alone saves. So if Saul was to ever become a promoter of the law-free gospel, nothing short of a miracle would need to occur. And that's exactly what happens. The miracle of regeneration. Look at his next proof, his actual conversion, starting in verse 15. Paul says, But when he... who has set me apart before I was born... All me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's a beautiful description of salvation, isn't it? The only explanation of why Paul would go from being a violent persecutor to a devoted preacher of the gospel is God's intervention in his life. His love and his zeal for Judaism came to a screeching halt when he was confronted by the sovereign Lord Jesus. Not unlike many of us. He was extremely 
zealous, he says, for the traditions of my father. But he says, but when he, a contrast that Paul sets up here, he, he had one uh, agenda, one things that Saul thought he was going to be doing, but God had a different agenda for him. He had one way he wanted to go, and God had something different for him. He, he puts this contrast, but when he was pleased, <clears throat> the one Paul circumcised on the eighth day, he encountered the circumciser of the heart, God. The one of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Paul experienced the one who wrestled with Jacob and changed his name. The Hebrew of Hebrews was confronted by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Paul got stopped in his track. He says, as for me in Philippians, I was found blameless as to the law. But one faithful day, Yahweh appeared to Paul, the one who loved Paul with an everlasting love and drew him in loving kindness. He changed his life and listened to Paul's confession since that day. Philippians chapter 3. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I count as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God. Man, everything that Paul thought he was gaining meant nothing to him anymore. He encountered the Lord, who he describes as the one who set him apart. That's really good, Paul. This is isolated for a purpose or separated with intention, is what Paul is saying here. No notorious work on his behalf. He was set apart and then called effectually called by God's grace. You know, this is good for me because Paul didn't volunteer to be an apostle. He wasn't like standing in the apostle line, like taking a number, waiting. No, he didn't. A commentator says this is just good for my heart. Quote, after meeting Christ, it became obvious to him, speaking of Paul, that God has sovereignly, providentially set him apart from birth so that his entire life was a preparation to become the greatest proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Clearly, Paul did not choose God. God chose Paul for salvation, even as he chose him to be his apostle, end quote. Isn't this wonderful? Think about it. You would never choose God yourself. You would Always make the wrong decision every time. If it was up to you, if it was left up to you, you would always choose wrong. Paul says, he set me apart. He chose me. That's true for each one of us. If you're truly saved, he chose you. Why? Because he wanted to. He set his love on you. It pleased God. To look upon the blasphemer and the persecutor of the church, 
the one that was determined to stamp out Christianity, the one who continually reject God's only son, and then to take him and make him a son. That's what he did with Saul. And that's what he's done with each one of us. He revealed Christ to him. This is such a lovely description of salvation. What more can be said that you hated Christ and God then revealed him to you? And this is interesting because I'm certain from reading Acts that Paul heard the gospel before. He knew who Christ was. He wasn't ignorant to the person of Christ. As a matter of fact, he says this himself in Acts 26. Luke captures it as Paul is giving his testimony before King Agrippa. He says, I myself was convinced that I, that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put in to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme in rage and fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Man, Paul was determined. He said he attempted, he, he urged them to blaspheme. What was the blaspheming? Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the only way. There's salvation in no one else. The gospel that we know and love Paul heard and he persecuted Christians because of it. Earlier, Paul has seen Jesus as a blasphemous imposter, but the vision on Damascus Road meant a radical change for his whole life. He finally seen it. His eyes was finally open to it, that Jesus is the Son of God, the very Son of God. And Paul then devoted the rest of his life to serving that very Son of God. But why does Paul include this testimony of his conversion as proof of his independence of any man teacher? That's the question I have to ask myself. And I think he answers it very quickly. He was pleased to reveal his son to me. Then he says, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul doesn't focus on the personal benefits of his salvation here, which is good for my heart to remember. He focuses on the why God set him apart, why God called him. Why? To preach, to tell others about him. He had a message that he was supposed to carry. Paul became the apostle by revelation. Uh, Paul, uh, that Paul became an apostle by revelation is another indication of his apostleship was not brought by human means. But the revelation of Christ that Paul received was not an end of itself. The revelation was made so that Paul might be a preacher of the gospel and specifically that he would preach the gospel of Christ among the Gentiles. Each one of us have a particular purpose, too. None of us are apostles. If you are, let's talk afterwards. I guarantee you, you're not. But each one of us have our area of influence and our areas of ministry that the Lord has given us. He's saved us for. He's set us apart and then called us to. How you doing in it? How you doing? Rather, it's your uh, kids at 
around the table at dinner and you're preaching to them, or rather as you got a company and you're making much of Christ in that. How are you doing? He was called to preach Christ to the Gentiles. Now, many of us, if not all of us in here are Gentiles. Any Jews in here? I didn't think so. I didn't think so. Now, this is common to us. We're inclined to kind of take this for granted, that Paul was sent to preach Christ to the Gentiles. But for the first century Jew, especially one like Paul, who was prepared to stamp out Christianity, this was a tremendous step in God's economy. This was something that was totally different that in any way no one was expecting or ready for. All of his previous training would have convinced Paul and motivated him that there was only one God and that that God has revealed himself to the Jews alone. And so Paul, for him to be going out to the Gentile nations, was radical. But he didn't care. He knew what had happened. He knew the life that he had been given. He knew that he truly understood that Jesus was the Son of God. And so his life completely changed. Paul's encounter with Christ changed everything for him. And he reoriented everything in his life. What used to matter the most no longer mattered. And what did not matter before was central to Paul's life. Paul's eternal life, entire life was centered on Christ and what Christ had predetermined for him to be occupied with. Can you say the same is true for you since you've been saved? Are you occupied or are you focused with the things that the Lord wants you to be focused with? Are you accounting your life as nothing for the sake of knowing Christ? Are you pursuing him in all things? We're not... Apostles, You're not called to be an apostle. But I know some Gentiles that you can preach the gospel to. I can show you where some of them are. What do you say? Everything in a Christian's life should be encompassed by this reality that you are in Christ. Christ is your Lord and Savior. This should dominate every aspect of your life. I remember the first time that I was encountered with this thought. Growing up, we used to listen to rap and hip-hop. I still really enjoy rap now. You can stone me later. It's okay. (laughs) But after the Lord saved me, I started listening to Christian rap. Um, I thought it was wise to listen to music that preached the truth in a style that I like. But there was a group of Christian rappers that I used to listen to who started promoting this idea of rejecting the title Christian rapper. And they wanted to be considered Christian, I mean, rappers who happened to be Christians. And this didn't sit well with me. I wasn't a mature believer, but everything in my soul and everything that I knew about the reality of what God had done in my heart rejected this thought. The thought that Christian couldn't be the most dominating thing about me. To be a Christian rapper, I saw to be a badge of honor, and these men were rejecting it. They wanted to be rappers who were Christians. What do you think about that? Is Christian the most important thing about you? Are you a construction worker who just happened to be a Christian? Are you a banker who just happened to be a Christian? 
Or could you proudly wear the title Christian banker? What's like what's the most important thing about you? Christian doctor. I think we got to be confronted with this. Cuz Paul got confronted with it and it changed everything about his life. We have to somehow get our hearts reoriented to the things that matter the most. And that's loving the Lord and preaching Christ while we're here in whatever arena he has us in. He who set us apart called us, and I believe he called each one of us to preach him as well. And we'll look at the last proof. I only got four minutes, so I'm going to read fast. That Paul gives to support his independent gospel. And this is his post-conversion travels. He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. This is after being saved. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the region of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown to the persons of the church of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorify God because of me. What's Paul's point? He didn't hurry off to talk with others about the legitimacy of the revelation that he had been given. He knew with certainty the message that Christ had revealed to him. He didn't need outside confirmation or consultation on what he knew. He was called to be an apostle because of who called him, and he immediately got to work. He says for three years he preached the gospel in Arabia and Damascus. Paul was not waiting for further instructions, but Paul's confidence in his independent and validity of his gospel message manifested itself in him going to preach to Gentiles. He didn't need anyone to tell him what to do. He got, he got straight to work. And then when he finally did go up to Jerusalem after three years to see Peter, it was only for a short time. He was there, he says, 15 days. Not enough time to be indoctrinated with all the truth. Many people say he didn't go seeking information from Peter. I don't necessarily agree with it. I think it's clear he did want to get to know the other apostles and talk to them about him becoming a Christian and hear about the traditions of Christ and what he did, his works, his dealings. I think that that's obvious in Paul's life and in his teachings. But I don't think he was going up to seek validity, for to seek validation from them. I think he went up to just... Learn of what Christ had done while he was here on earth. He was already preaching his gospel message for three years before he went there. He didn't need anyone tell him what to do. Why? Because Christ is the one who told him what to preach. He was there 15 days with Peter. It's likely they didn't talk about the weather the whole time. I'm sure he asked Peter questions about the Lord, questions about his ministry. No doubt Peter had questions for Paul about his conversion. No doubt, Peter wanted to know what the Lord had revealed to him. But Paul was not going to seek an authority to release him to preach the gospel message that he had. Why? 
because he knew who gave him his gospel message. So to reject Paul's message as he's writing to the Galatian church, he's trying to emphasize the fact that it's to reject God's message because his message came from the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore it carries the authority that the Lord Jesus Christ has. And I think that we all have to hearten our heart or hearken our hearts to that today to really think about if we adhere to this gospel message. Many of us come here week in, week out, day in, day out sometimes. Some of you are here a lot at the church. <laughs> but maybe you're not adhering to the true gospel. Maybe you are trying to, in your heart of heart, add your works to it. Maybe you're trying to add your goodness to it. Maybe you're trying to add your wisdom to it. I plead with you, stop. Faith alone is all that it takes. This is what Paul's whole point is. These Galatian believers were being... tormented by a false gospel of adding one thing, circumcision. I think we have to be careful of what we try to add to what Christ has done in the secret of our heart, right? I plead with you, turn to Christ if you haven't, before it's too late. Let me pray for us.